Turn with me, please, to the 24th chapter of Matthew. We began a consideration in the Olivet Discourse last Sunday. Today, we want to continue our study therein, and uh, I'll be reading the first 14 verses of Matthew 24. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, has left Jerusalem, the temple, and he makes him his way to the Mount of Olives with his disciples and gives this most important prophecy that we shall find in the New Testament in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes and diverse in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall stand, uh, ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. If you read carefully this Olivet Discourse, if you read it prayerfully, considering its primary purpose, I think it should become very clear to you that the Lord here is in no way setting forth signs of the end of time in order to satisfy curiosity. When the disciples asked a question, or questions, after hearing the Lord predict the coming destruction of the temple, in uh, verse uh, 3, and when they said, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, 
and of the end of the world, that you have to understand are not separating the destruction that shall come on the city and the temple from the time of the Lord's coming. It's together in their questioning here. And so concerning the end of the world in verse 3, the Greek is also translatable as in Barry's Greek-English interlinear, the completion of the age. The word for world in our translation is not the Greek word cosmos or the word that means the world in its material creation and its orderly arrangement. It is the world in the sense of its periods of time. The Greek could be transliterated eons, meaning age. The question concerning the coming destruction of the temple then obviously includes the coming of Christ and the end of the age is all coming together. It was common in Jewish conception, and it's also written in their Talmud, that the appearing of the Messiah would close the old Jewish age and it would usher in the new messianic age. And knowing the Lord to be the Messiah then, they could easily transform uh, their conception into the question of his future appearing as the Messiah. The destruction of Jerusalem and its temple would bring, of course, the separation of Judaism uh, from Christianity or Christianity from Judaism. The two were intertwined somewhat until that destruction took place in 70 AD. And then, of course, the kingdom of God would be expanded to the whole world by the worldwide preaching of the gospel. But the kingdom of God and of Christ in its full and eternal manifestation would come at the second appearing, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course the purpose of God would be completed and the elect from all nations would have been saved. That, of course, is what Peter teaches us in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're, we're to account the long-suffering of our Lord, that is why he has not come the second time yet, as salvation. So both the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole end of the world age in its present state and condition at the second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ both are included in this discourse. But to our present text, it should become clear that the Lord is not satisfying curiosity. He's warning. He's preparing his followers. Including all who confess faith in him. All the way to his second coming. To be prepared. And to be prepared for whatever would come the solemn and practical applications, they apply to us now, as well as to those first followers of the Lord. The warning the Lord Jesus gives 
is not to be misled by mistaken signs. In verses 4 through 8. And as Jesus, uh, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The warning, of course, to begin with, is not to be deceived. And the fact is that many will be. Many will be deceived. The Lord is telling his own followers, his own disciples, not to be deceived. But to take heed. He's calling us to listen, to believe the warning he gives, to be aware of the danger. There is very real spiritual danger. You see, the major warfare, not one many are very conscious of, it seems, is not warfare of nation against nation. That's bad enough. But it's the warfare against eternity-bound souls. That's the most serious. The leader in this warfare, as we know, is the arch enemy of God and man. The arch deceiver, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So before the Lord shows the calamities that come on the earth and declares they are not signs of the end or that the end has arrived, he warns of false Christ. False Christ, and soon he adds, of course, the false prophets. These will come even with sinister powers and what Paul would later call lying wonders. And these will be able to deceive a great many. We read, of course, in verse 11, many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. We read in verses 24 and in verses 25, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before that before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there would arise false Christ. Even if we don't know their names, that's not difficult for us to understand if we understand the history. The Jews expected the Messiah to be a political deliverer. They expected him to be one who would free them from foreign domination. They weren't looking for a Messiah to free them from sin. So that Whoever would set up himself as a political deliverer could pretend to be the Messiah. 
And just like the false prophets who arose before the Chaldean destruction of the city and the temple four or five hundred years ago, nearly five hundred years before, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, they falsely, of course, assured the people that the calamity would not come. Not going to happen. They're not going to enter into Jerusalem. They're not going to destroy Jerusalem. They had and preached a false peace. Peace. When there was no peace. So many false prophets would arise before the destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 A.D. And in the near 2,000 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. History of course is replete with those who have claimed to be the Christ. And there have arisen many, quote, end-time prophets during this period. Whole cults, whole cults have arisen. Whole cults. Claiming to know the time of the end and the time of Christ's coming. And many are drawn away by their false teaching. And these false teachings have come in spite of the clearest warning that our Lord Jesus gives against it. Even using as signs of the end what the Lord distinctly says are not. That the end is not yet. As in verse 6, Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The Lord said to his apostles in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. That's not given us to know. That's in the hands of of God alone. So what then is the protection from being led astray from these false teachers and these misleading signs? What's the protection? False teaching, that which is most deceptive, is that which is closest to the truth. Close enough to deceive the unwary. Not an outright denial of what is true, but a subversion of what is true. That will remain in the world until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, in glory. And so strong can this be. It's under demonic power, demonic influence, and it can be so very strong that as the Lord says in verse 24, if it were possible, they shall deceive even the elect. That's how strong this teaching will be, how sinister it will be. That's why we've stated before that true spiritual discernment, if we walk with the Lord, does not simply enable us to see what's right from wrong or false from true, but what is right from what is nearly right? 
or what is true from what is nearly true. Very subtle. The adversary is a very subtle being. Of course, the good news for the elect, who are the gift of the Father to the Son, is that he takes responsibility for them. He takes the oversight of them. He undertakes to keep them. When the Lord Jesus Christ redeems sinners, when he brings us to know him, we become his responsibility. We are his. We belong to him. So the Lord Jesus Christ says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will no wise cast down. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. He hath made us his own. Now, he's not going to lose his own. These are the regenerate, the elect. They are the regenerate. They are those who are born of God by his sovereign will. They are they who know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And they're given a wondrous gift of faith in him. They bow to him. They submit to him as Lord alone. They can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day if the truth of Christ is implanted in your heart if his word is indeed your sole authority if the doing of his will is your purpose and your pursuit it's because the Holy Spirit is in you that will connect with our study this coming Wednesday evening you have the capacity to discern not only what is true from what is false, but what is almost true from what is really true. Because greater is in he that is in you than he that is in the world. As far as the calamities that come on the earth, even though there are clever and crafty preachers and teachers who use these as signs of the Lord's soon coming, Tickling the ears of the susceptible. The Lord clearly declared that these things are not signs of the end. It's only the beginning of sorrows. As he taught. There have always been date fixers. Throughout history, date fixers. Teaching that certain catastrophes or world events show that the time has arrived. Ah, oh, you remember some. There's one said, well, we've got the blood moon. That means the Lord's coming. Well, he didn't. Remember that? They got the Steins. They got them all. And they have millions of followers that swallow what they teach. The time, though, comes, the time goes, catastrophic events happen in the world. We just witnessed a massive earthquake in Turkey. 
It didn't just happen then, it happens throughout all history. And these date fixers are shown to be wrong over and over again. And yet people still swallow what they teach. As far as these so-called signs of the end has come, William Hendrickson observed, not any one not any single one of them could ever give anyone the right to make predictions with reference to either the date of Jerusalem's fall or the time of Christ's second coming. Those in times past, and we in our lifetime. We hear of these things. We witness these calamities. We've witnessed them. I've witnessed them since I was a young boy. Haven't you witnessed them since you were a child? And they're long before you were born. Generation after generation witnesses these things. We've been moved by them because of the death and the destruction they bring. but they don't constitute definite signs of the Lord's coming. He himself said that. The fall of Jerusalem was itself an end, but it was not the end. The end is yet to come. These false teachers and destructive world events do not signal that the time of the end has come. They are the beginning of sorrows. You notice what the Lord said in verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. It's very interesting, that word, sorrows. If these catastrophes, these things that occur in the world generation after generation are the beginning of sorrows, we might indeed ask, what will the end be? The Greek word that's translated sorrows in verse 8 is particularly the kind of sorrow that attends childbirth, birth pain. And they obviously signify that these horrendous events are leading to something. They're leading to a final consummation. And these are but birth pains, if you please, in the world. The calamities that take place. And finality. They will issue into new heavens, into new earth. A regeneration of this universe. We can't comprehend what that's going to be. The scriptures, of course, teach us distinctly that there will be new heavens and a new earth. It's called in places the regeneration. It will be the regeneration of creation itself. When that takes place, all these sorrows are past. They're forever over. 
the consummate purpose, the birth of new heavens and new earth will have taken place. And all the saints will then have new bodies. Bodies, resurrected bodies, glorious bodies, and will be forever with the Lord. You won't have to come here to hear a poor old preacher. You'll be in the presence of Christ himself. And so will this poor old preacher. I can't imagine what is coming. I'm going to see something about that. Look in Romans chapter 8. We'll just read verses 14 through 23 in Romans chapter 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself witness or beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The new heavens and the new earth we read about in Scripture, that belongs to the saints in Christ. That would belong to those who are saved by God's grace. And then, of course, all sin passed over forever. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Notice, for the earnest expectation of the creature or creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Here's the prime purpose. Here's the purpose for which we in Christ are being prepared. For the creature, creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is coming. This is why we have to go through trial, difficulty, suffering, preparations. This is why the earth itself convulses with all of these horrendous catastrophic events that take place. Boom! Saint Mount, Saint Mount, I can't get it out. Saint Mount Helen. Do you remember that? That wasn't the only time that happens in the earth. These things happen throughout history. All these horrendous events. We just hear the tragic news in, in uh, Mississippi of horrendous, tornado that tore through a town and killed last time I heard 23 and destroyed destruction incredible these are birth things this is the groaning of the creation waiting when there shall come a final deliverance God shall create new heavens and a new earth. He shall, out of this old creation, bring a new one. For we know 
that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain as in pain and in birth together until now. So you see the Lord's telling these catastrophic events to take place in the world generation after generation, not just at some period right before his coming. They're birth pangs. That's the beginning of sorrows. That's not the end. Before the Lord then gives the one condition that will take place before the end, he declares that only those with a patient and persevering faith will be saved. In verses 9 through 14 of Matthew 24. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And ye shall stand, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. From the catastrophes that must come on the earth that affect mankind in general, the Lord turned now to the particular trials that are to be faced by his own. By genuine Christians. You see, we live in a world that's at enmity against God. The world hates God. The world does not want God. The world wants its own vile ways. And this is not only known by us because it's taught in the Bible... We were born into it at enmity against God. We came into this world with sin. We were born sinners at enmity against God. We came in the world that way. We know it by experience. And when through the gospel of the cross, were brought into an actual peace with God. This enmity is removed because its cause has been removed. And the new life of Christ within then leads us into a life-transforming obedience to him. And the fallen world despises us for it, does it not? The world despises those who live godly in Christ Jesus. The world despises those who are not ashamed to bear testimony to him by a godly life and with their lips. In this world, the world does not appreciate that. Correct? And yet we were in the same condition until God in mercy showed us mercy 
in bringing us to know what he has done for us in his son by the cross. You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you faultless and unblameable and un, uh, unreprovable in his sight. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you outlive this new life in truth in this world, this life of godliness, it contradicts it. It is light that hurts the darkness. Just like an afflicted eye that the light hurts. There's a clash. And this clash is inevitable. Because the world in its rebellion against God will then turn its enmity against who? Against those who believe. Against those who will stand firm in the word of God as their authority. Those who believe it's God's commands that stand and are to be obeyed. The world will not like that. It will hate it. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Do not enter into their perversions. Do not enter into their sins. Your very life then will be a reproof. And a fool hates reproof. And sinners are fools. And hatred will turn against you. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ in calling his own in John 15? He says to them in verses 18 and 19, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Light reproves the darkness. It's interesting. That, uh, that what the world, Jews and Gentiles, did in order to justify their persecution against Christians, even those 2,000 years ago, what would they do to portray this Christian in such a way that they could justify their persecution? They would accuse them of being evildoers. whether it was declaring the gospel of the grace of God instead of the works of the law for salvation, or the refusal to give divine honors to Caesar, or obeying the word of God instead of the laws that contradicted it, or being accused of immorality because they met behind closed doors at times. They would justify persecution 
by charging them as evildoers. So an ancient historian, Tacitus was his name, speaks of the Christian as, quote, a kind of men hated for their acts of wickedness. The most godly people that has ever been on the face of the earth. This is the way of the world historically to this day. Demanding Christians obey its ungodly ways and its ungodly rules. And if you don't do so, if you don't compromise with the homosexual outlook, if you don't compromise with the transgender junk, which is no such thing as John said one day, if you don't compromise with these things and you stand firm on the word of God, you're a hater. An evildoer. That's how persecution gets justified. And actually the Christian sees the real damage done to men and is the lover of them, endeavoring to lead them to Christ and in the right way. The world is at odds, though, with one who walks with Christ. Will either ridicule, accuse, imprison, or even kill those who, as Peter said, obey God rather than men. In light of this, not difficult to understand that what the Lord said would, would come and does come, as he says in verses 9 and 10, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall, ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Or if you look into, uh, over into Mark, next gospel. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 and in verses 9 through 13. Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. And ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony against them. Of course, you remember that in Paul. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Well, I've heard of sometimes preachers that are, didn't understand this exactly, so they didn't think, well, I don't have to study. I just open the Bible and point to it and preach something. That's not what he's talking about at all. Now, the brother shall betray the brother to death, the father, the son. And children shall rise up against their parents 
and shall cause them to be put to death. That happened, of course, in the Jewish culture. And it has happened before in the Christian culture. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The most difficult of all of this persecution is when it comes from close family members. That's got to be the hardest. The most difficult persecution. Or by those who they thought were real but betrayed them in times of persecution and affliction for the word's sake. Those who defected to save themselves under extreme suffering, but not only so, delivered up others. Thus the Lord declares something very clearly. He declares that love to him must be greater than love for the closest of family. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And concerning those who would, quote, betray one another and hate one another, that ancient historian I quoted, Tacitus, he also wrote concerning the persecutions that took place under the monster named Nero. And he wrote, quote, At first, those who confessed were seized. Afterward, upon their information, a great multitude. It is historically verified. Spurgeon made a tremendous comment. Very much applying here. Persecution would reveal the traitors within the church as well as the enemies without. Then notice, not a few but many, who would either defect under persecution, as in Matthew 24, 10, or be deceived and carried away by false prophets and false teachings and doctrines of demons, as in verse 11. For what the devil does not accomplish by persecution outside or defectors and traitors inside, he attempts to destroy by false doctrine. And then there will be many who shall fall prey to iniquity, which means lawlessness. They revert back to the old habits of a sinful life that will kill a professed love that was there before for Christ and for genuine believers. Sin kills love. Sin is self-seeking, selfish, wanting its way, defiant, of that which doesn't suit its fancy. Haters 
because iniquity shall abound. The love of many shall wax cold. You see that historically. First, that old arch enemy brings a lot of persecution. Afflicting as much as he can, harming, causing the, the death even of many who know the Lord. And then when he figures out that doesn't work, he turns his tactic to false teaching. By the way, that's the order in Scripture. That's the order. Find out, in, like in Second Timothy chapter, chapter 3, I think. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. John the Apostle, he wrote the book of Revelation, of course, under divine inspiration. Great trouble, difficulty would come, but then it would also turn to false teaching. That he's correcting in 1 John. So. <clears throat> there are many, many, who seem to begin well. They profess to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They profess to love the saints. But in the passing of time, they fall prey. They fall away, even if there's not great persecution. The Word of God teaches distinctly that when one is truly born of God, when they truly have new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they've come because they've been broken over sin, a work of God has taken place, and they've come in genuine repentance to look to and trust only in Christ crucified for them. And they rely only upon the blood of his cross as actual reconciliation to God. That faith will persevere. That faith will overcome the world. But that faith will also be purged and strengthened by trial. Most don't come into this trial because they don't live under Christ or bear testimony to him. But those who do know the enmity of the world. And those who are real, when trial comes, it but strengthens their faith and it becomes, as Peter wrote, more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. It might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, the believer... The one who is truly begotten of God wants to please God, not men. Take heed to yourselves. Really, the Lord is warning here, isn't he? Take heed 
and consider something maybe that hasn't been considered. Consider verse 13 as a promise. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Begin right, and you finish right. Yet all of it goes back to the grace of God alone. All goes back to his enablement, his grace. So we keep looking to him alone. Trusting him only. Coming to him. The believer doesn't simply come to him one time and that's it and then everything's okay. Nope. Reminded of what? The, the tense that Peter used when he said, to whom coming? That means he comes, he comes today, he comes tomorrow, he comes the next day, he continues to come. Him that cometh to me, not simply came, I will know I was cast out. We're to know him, seek him, love him supremely, who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what we're going to deal with this afternoon. That's what we're going to consider. Walking with him. Begin right and you finish right. Yet when it's all said and done, it's all to the praise of the glory of his grace, but divine grace doesn't simply begin the work. He that begins the work finishes it. He performs it. Until the day of Jesus Christ, our hope cannot be in ourselves, can it? It's in Christ only. And what God has promised through him in his holy word. So is Spurgeon again. He, Christ, would have them remember that it's not the man who starts the race but the one who runs to the goal who wins the prize. Briefly. We don't know when this will be all completed. But the Lord gives the one thing that will be done before he comes again the second time. He gives the sign. Only it's a sign that we can't know when it'll be accomplished because we can't see things worldwide. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. We know it had a preliminary fulfillment. Paul could speak of preaching the gospel to the whole world, but he meant the Roman world as it was then. Now, we don't know when that gospel will go to all the nations, or has it already? I believe it has, in a way. You know, we have communications that send it forth. We have missionaries that are sound in the gospel of the Son of God. Some of them reach continents with their broadcasts and so forth.
that's going to happen. Not one of God's elect will be lost in finality. They shall be brought to him out of every nation, kindred, tribe, people on the face of the earth. Not until that is done will he come the second time. And at that time, that's one of his parables, the tares will be burned, the false ones. Tares and wheat, you remember that parable? You know, the tares look just like the wheat until they get to a certain point. He knows the true, he knows the false. He says in application, Then shall the Son of Man send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and, na and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth in the, in, uh, the kingdom of their father. They shall shine as the sun. They shall have that new earth and new heaven will belong to them. We don't know when the consummate time of God will come. But I tell you this, 76 years old, I know I can't have much time. <laughs> be a few years at best. Yeah, not tomorrow. So you see, the thing is not, do you see this sign or that sign or this happening and this points to the Lord's immediate coming? No. At any time, this is the question. Are you ready? Be ye also ready. For such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.